Welcome back to What Is It About The Weather, where we're always talking the weather, but not so much about the weather. Hope you've had a good week since we last talked. I'm still getting out from under the weather. I've entered that coughing phase, so hopefully that won't interfere with getting this podcast done. I know that uh, I've worked hard to try to not go out and be the contagious person that's out there coughing up a lung and thinking, oh, I'm just you know coughing up a lung and it's not having any impact on anybody in these closed spaces. So tried to kind of stay out of the mix this week, except when I really had to go out. But hopefully by next week, I'll be back to something resembling a normal routine where I can get out and mingle again and be amongst the the world population without uh, getting anybody else sick. I, it, it's weird, you know, with as warm of a winter as I've had, I was kind of surprised that I came down with something. But I was looking at, you know, here in the U.S., we have um, a couple different places that track like influenza outbreaks and those sort of things. And while I don't think I had the flu, it definitely was a fever-like type event. So in any case, so I was tracking those things. And I've been amazed at how much, even in, in warm places, that there are, you know, we're in that phase of wintertime when things tend to peak. And this year's been no exception. So again, I'm doing my part to try to not get anybody else sick. But hopefully next week I can go back to polluting people's minds in other ways. In any case, uh, let's see, weather week, weather week, besides me coming out from under the weather. Oh, so, you know, I must say that it's beginning of March, beginning of new month, and we're kicking off National Weather Podcast Month. Now, you have to ask yourself, what in the world? How can you have your own month? And for, for my international audience, I try, I pushed for the international angle, but there really aren't a lot of international weather-related podcasts. Most of them are here in the U.S. There are some others, but but generally speaking, there's kind of a core group of folks here in the U.S., and I'll put a link in the show notes, but just doing sort of an awareness campaign, you know, kicking off and providing an opportunity for people maybe to learn about podcasts they were unaware of, catch some new podcasts. I will tell you that some of these podcasts are a little more in the phase of about the weather, okay, or at least that makes up a bigger portion of what they talk about, but a lot of them are like what we do here, which is a little bit more about relating weather concepts to the broader aspects of life. So you might be interested in catching some of those. I'll I'll definitely put in a a link in the show notes. And towards the end of the month, I'm going to talk about a few of them in more detail um, as I get into an episode of expanding your weather world. And certainly one way to do that is through podcast. So look at the show notes. Take a look at the website if you're interested in uh, learning a little bit more about some of the other weather podcasts that are out there and things that you might want to listen to. All right. So again, I'm going to try to do all this today without coughing. But if you hear some sort of what seems like an odd break at some point, just please forgive me. It probably means that I put things on pause. I gave a big cough, tried to get it all out of my system and then came back And you know, just about now is probably going to be about one of those times. Now it's time to get back to one of those kind of quarterly topics we've, we've touched on, which is did weather change history? Now we all have memorable days in our lives you know, I can think about maybe the day I graduated from graduate school or some other event in life. You know, it could be both positive and negative, certainly, that you have this vivid recollection of. 
right? And, and many of those for us are things related to our own personal life, right? But sometimes those events fall under the, it was a big international event or even local event, but something that's beyond our, our normal personal scope. Now, do you know where you were? On January 28, 1986. Now, for some of you, may not have been born. For others, that that date may not hold any meaning to you. But it's certainly a date for me that has always stuck with me. And that would be the day that the U.S. Space Shuttle Challenger would explode a little after 70 seconds into takeoff. And I think, you know, there's a few reasons it, it still sticks with me to this day. One, I've, you know, I've always kind of been fascinated by space exploration and space travel. But it also has to do with the idea that we were entering that day and age of so much of our lives where it was, you know, kind of this 24-hour news stream. So, you know, TV was on. I was watching the space shuttle launch. And, you know, it, space shuttles had gotten to the point where not everybody kind of stopped what they were doing when they were la- launching. It wasn't like the early days of space exploration. But in any case, so we, we had this launch going on. And I still remember seeing that explosion take place. And, and you know, you, you just know right away, right, that wasn't right. You know, I, don't, I don't care what was going on, but, you know, Space shuttle rockets in general, they tend to leave these big contrails as they're going up. And all of a sudden, you see contrails going in different directions, and you know you know, something's gone amiss. And it was a beautiful day. Right? It's a crisp winter day. You're looking, and you're, I mean, again, sometimes you don't always have these nice clear skies to see these things take place. Nice, beautifully clear blue sky served as a backdrop. Yet, it would bring to the end lives of of these astronauts. And on that flight, and I think, you know, that was one of the reasons that the flight had a little more prominence that day. This was the first what would be called a civilian astronaut. Now, this lady who would become the first to, to make that step had gone through training. It wasn't like they just slapped a spacesuit on somebody and said, have fun. But nonetheless... We think so often about people that go into space, they kind of know the risk, right? They accept the probability that they may never come back and that there's real risk with getting on these, you know, glorified firecrackers. I don't know why it's a very wrong way to phrase it, but, you know, very, it's, it's a huge rocket that is so close to being a bomb when you think about all the things that are going on. Uh, in the in the physics of these massive, powerful launch vehicles that have to break Earth's gravity and things can go wrong, right? Generally speaking, you know, they always have the acceleration of a fire work of some type, but they aren't built to have the explosion part built in. But on that day, something went wrong. And that thing going wrong led to the disintegration of the space shuttle or the breaking into bits, however you want to look at it. Now, investigations would take place. What would happen? 
what was responsible. Why did it happen? What would this mean for the future of space travel? These are all questions that would come up. So let's start by looking at a little bit of that weather influence on this event. Now for that day in general, it was cold. It's a very cold morning. There had been some ice on the launch pad. But it was slowly warming up during the course of the day. And again, other than the coldness of the air, things were nice. And actually, there had been some delays in the launch for a couple of days prior due to weather. And, you know, space exploration and weather have certainly no shortage of a history together. And it's always tends to be focused in the same things that we think about. Is there going to be lightning? Might there be strong winds or something that could have an impact along those lines? And we tend to look at these things and we tend to focus in on the events that are what we would call severe weather. But if you recall, back in the summer, North Hem- Northern Hemisphere summer, that is, when I, when I mentioned the concept of the biggest killer, weather-wise, it's actually heat, right? And we talked a little bit about the subtleness of that. And, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's not like a, a bolt of lightning, it's not hail falling from the sky. It's not it, not the cold, deep snow or anything that you're having to trudge through or anything. But it's what I like to call sneaky weather. And this cold weather in Florida, in some ways, was that same sort of thing. It was sneaky, now on the other end of the spectrum. And like I said, there were there had been ice on the platform. There had been some other things going on. But generally speaking, okay... Those things weren't deemed to be a concern, and in the investigation afterwards would show that they really weren't a concern. But the other thing always to keep in mind, and and why we do watch these things with weather, is when I use the firecracker analogy, it's, it's more of the idea that these things are really powerful, yet they're indeed very fragile. Okay, For as strong as you can build something, it can also be extremely weak, and to, and to give another weather advance, uh, another weather-related kind of idea, the space shuttle's tiles, the thermal tiles underneath that used to protect its coating, okay, when it would come back in to the atmosphere where things get really hot, were very strong against thermal concerns. Yet in the early days, when they were still landing the space shuttle you know, in, in places like out in the western U.S. and then flying it back for launch from, from the eastern U.S. That flight took place on the top of a 747 jumbo jet, so they'd actually put this thing up there on top of it. And they always had to be concerned about flying around heavily saturated areas or, or like through too many clouds. And the reason being is those same tiles were like sponges. And... The sponges would absorb the moisture and then, for instance, if it got too high and things got to a freezing level, it would form ice chunks and essentially eat holes in these tiles like Swiss cheese almost. That's kind of what it looked like in the aftermath. So 
despite being able to handle thousands of degrees of temperature when they're coming back in the atmosphere, just a simple flight from one side of the country to the other under what would normally be innocuous weather could do severe damage to this you know, quintessential piece of safety on the device. So it does highlight the kind of the fine line between a rocket and a fireworks, right? It's it's employs some of the very key same elements, yet that rocket needs to be much more controlled in what it does so that we don't end up with an explosion, right? And certainly there's a lot of science that goes into that to keep it from happening, but it, a lot of times it's still walking that fine line. Now, what would we find in the investigation? The investigation would uncover that what happened had to do with something as simple as an O-ring. Now, I realize that a gasket or a ring, when you think about it on a big device like this, isn't simple and it's not small. But they found that this ring, if it was too cold, wouldn't expand the way it was supposed to and would allow hot gases to escape. And in that, ultimately, and this is what happened, things got to a point where those hot gases were able to literally burn a hole in the tank and things got catastrophic from there. Now, all it was was too cold. That ring could not and was not tested for temperatures below 4 degrees C and for you know, global audience. And in the U.S. are Fahrenheit, you know, we're talking in the, in the 30s, right? Still above freezing, but still cold. So that morning it was below freezing. By the afternoon it had gotten above freezing and some of that ice I talked about had melted off, but it was still too cold and it would take a while. And you can imagine this. I mean, you know how you are when you get cold is even when you come into a nice warm place, it takes a while for your elasticity to respond, for your body to respond to get warmed up again. And this would be the same thing with this O-ring. So it's been well documented that weather was the ultimate cause or the trigger effect that caused the O-ring to fail. So there's no doubt that weather was responsible for the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. However, now we get into this idea of, did that change things? We know it changed things for the astronauts on that space shuttle that would never see their families again. We know it changed things for looking around at people who did tributes, people maybe who worked at NASA at the time, people in the industry. It always has these short-term implications. Certainly, it inspires patriotism, if you will. Ronald Reagan was president at the time. Interestingly enough, what we have here in the U.S., for again, for those in the international audience, what we call a State of the Union address. And this is an address where the president of the United States once a year goes and speaks to members of our legislative branches, the Senate and the House of Representatives here, about topics that are of importance to the country in general. And that was, that was the night he was supposed to give his speech. 
and you can imagine that that's not exactly how things were supposed to go down. But for better or for worse, and, and you hope these things don't get too polit- or politicized, excuse me, they can become a motivation for people to feel strong about their country again and feel strong about doing patriotic things. And those things are good. Now, on the flip side of that, it would take over a couple of years before the space shuttle would go to space again. And it did. And again, it would have a disaster some, not exactly 20 years later, a little short of that, when there was, you know, we had problems with those tiles that we were talking about in a reentry situation. But in the short term, you know, there was a delay, there was a pause, and there was a lot of thought put into can we provide a safer environment for the humans getting on these space shuttles? How do we make these devices safer in general? How do we make sure that we're going through the proper safety checks before we do a launch, right? Is it less about everything has its weaknesses, right? Is it less about the weaknesses than it is knowing what they are and making sure to not cross those borders? So a lot lot of effort went into that process. At the same time, I think people would realize and be reminded of the fact that Space exploration, at least where we are today, is a dangerous thing. You know, we we get through these same things all the time, right? Getting in your car can be a dangerous thing, and it can. There's people die every day just getting in an automobile and going to work, going to the store, whatever it is. But there's a lot of emphasis on space travel, and on top of that, putting together one of these items and getting it into space is a very expensive, time-consuming endeavor in terms of both physical cost, you know, the actual monetary cost, but in terms of careers that are spent and effort that it's spent on making this one event take place, this single launch take place. And I think it would highlight how we deal with these future issues and and think about, like I said, the, the safety element going forward. However, when this was looked at again, you know, I started looking at this kind of topic about a year ago when we had the 30-year anniversary of this disaster. And most of the people would say in reading about it that there were certainly some short-term implications. But if you really look at the long term, it's not clear that all that much really changed. You know, as I mentioned, the space shuttle program resumed, and this would go on for a few, you know, few more decades, a couple more decades, I guess. And despite having another disaster after that, it, it was the program always had a set lifespan. But it but it went on for a period of time. And another interesting thing is the one of the other kind of civilian astronauts that was due to go, you know, that served as a backup during this process would eventually go to space. So those sort of things still happened. Even if they're a pause of input on it in the short term. And, you know, let's look around us now. I mean, since then, we've we've built the International Space Station. People go to it all the time. People spend, what, over a year on it in certain cases now. We've sent spacecraft to Mars. We're now talking about sending people to Mars. I saw that this past week that SpaceX is talking about launching a couple of people around the moon next year. Next year. We have other countries around the globe that are getting into manned space flight. So all these things have continued to happen. You know, we've we've sent 
I don't know, probes out to, I don't know whether whether it's Pluto, whether it's Saturn, and all these things have continued to go on despite the cost, despite the risk. And again, when it's just a machine, yeah, there's 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 a cost risk to it, in, but you, you lose the human element. But there's been no shortage of talk about, as I just mentioned, going around the moon or going to the moon with, with other countries wanting to do this as well. Going to Mars, thinking about space as our next home or our next set of resources, landing things on asteroids. I, I'm still amazed when you think about landing probes on asteroids like we've done. So did it really have an influence? And nothing I have found has suggested that beyond the short term and beyond being another reminder of these things we already know and still keep in mind that it had any meaningful long-term impact in terms of changing history, that our desire, you know, people always talk about, you know, looking up in space and wanting to go out there. And somehow I think our desire both as at individual country levels or individuals even, but humanity as a whole, I think we have this desire to see what's out there. And people always talk about, well, you know, going into space is easy. Going, We don't even understand the bottom of the oceans. And yes, there are technical challenges in both. But, you know, every day people generally get up and they look to the sky and anybody who's ever been, you know, in an area without much light pollution at night and seen the Milky Way galaxy or seen any of these other things is amazed to the sky. It's no different than, and, and I think it's part of my fascination with it. I love looking to the sky for everything. I love looking to the sky for weather, but I do love looking to the sky for stars and imagining that somewhere out there, there's another planet that needs me to give a weather forecast. No, but that, that you know, there's these things going on in space and it's such a big vast openness that we want to reach out there and be a part of it. So I'm not sure in this case that weather changed history. I'd like to think that it had an impact in that we appreciate human life more in a way that we take the steps to be a little more safe when we're doing this process. But like I said, no matter how you look at it, and I don't think this is going to change anytime soon. For, for the foreseeable future, space travel is going to be dangerous. It doesn't mean it can't be done safely. And it doesn't mean you can't mitigate, mitigate the risk to a, a reasonable level. But if you look about the number of people that have gone into space, and you look at the number of people that have lost their lives in doing this, it, it's still a relatively high percentage. You know, I mentioned people getting in the car. Well, there are billion-plus people that get in a car every day. And how many of them lose their life comparatively, I, I think it's a smaller percentage. And I hope over time that fewer people percentage-wise lose their lives. But I hope we, at the same time we never lose that desire and that drive. Because I do think space exploration, you know, we, we talk about whether there's benefits and how does it impact humanity. But I think there's more to it than that. I think it's an underpinning in our desire to explore now that we do understand the surface level of our planet. But even before that, I have to imagine that long before people easily went around the globe, they looked up to the stars and thought it would be interesting to go up there and understand what's going on out there. So, I don't think weather 
changed history in this case on a big scale. Maybe fine-tuned it, maybe tweaked it, certainly for a few people who lost their lives that day. It would they would never be the same. So for astronauts, McAuliffe, Jarvis, Resnick, Scobie, McNair, Smith, and Onizuka, there's no doubt that their history changed forever. And certainly, as I mentioned before, the impacts of those around them and those working for NASA that have no doubt that dealt with the, the struggles of what went on afterwards, it's impacted their lives. But I'd like to think, if anything, as, as a whole, as humanity, we used it as an embracing moment and a desire to push forward instead of thinking about it as an alteration to our history and changing who we are at our fundamental core. So, Godspeed to those astronauts, and may the weather shine upon all future astronauts and, and give you an opportunity. I don't know, I always think it'd be cool to, to look at space. I, you know, the idea of, of from space looking down, the, you, know, you see some shots sometime from the International Space Station of looking at weather from above. It, it's kind of a neat thing. I, uh, listen, as much as I like space, I'm, I'm too much of a chicken to ever imagine getting in a rocket that might take me to an International Space Station, but I must admit, it's a cool idea when I'm fly, even in an airplane and up above the weather. I always find it fascinating. So may your weather always be positive and interesting, but safe. All right. So coming soon in this National Weather Podcast Month, I'm going to talk a little bit about some things that are relevant to that. So I went in, started March, in like a lion. We'll see if it goes out like a lamb. I, that, that phrase, you know, it's it, the whole idea is, you start in a active month and you end in a little more calm state. And some people use it for March. Some people use it for other months. In any case, I had about an hour of very high weather turmoil on, on actually the, the first of March. Interestingly enough, we had some, some storms in my area, but we'll see if the lion lamb things holds going forward. But we're going to talk about, given this is also severe weather month in a lot of places that here in the northern hemisphere anyways or we're at least entering that season you know it could be things like crying wolf we're going to talk about do meteorologists cry wolf how do we keep people well alerted in this kind of changing social media society and how do we do that properly and effectively in a cross-generational way because as we all know we don't all use the same tools to communicate or, or get key communications and we'll probably end the month like i said i you know We've talked about a lot of things over the course of the past year, and some people have, have written me about, you know, how do I you know, find a better weather app, for, for or which one should I use? But also, there's been the question about learning more, and about being more exposed to weather, at times, and in certain topics. But we'll we'll get into that and talk about some ways that, that you can do that too, wherever you might be. So, let's wrap up then. And you know the drill, right? RSVP, rate, share, validate, and pledge. Rating on iTunes or wherever it might be. Heck, rating on anywhere saying, hey, I like this thing. That's a good thing, right? Sharing, 
telling other people about the podcast and whatever mechanism you want to do that, whether it's resharing things that are put out there on social media, whether it's, you know, just communicating and letting somebody know about the podcast who may not know about it. And trust me, if you tell somebody about the podcast, there's a good chance they don't already know about it. I don't have that kind of listener level that you really need to worry about overextending what, you know, telling somebody who already knows about it. Validate, you know, give us feedback, give us show ideas. And, you know, there's a couple easy ways to do that. Email, what is it about the weather at gmail.com or alternately you can go to the website. Was it about the weather.com? And there's a nice form there under contact us. And certainly lastly, pledge. If you want to support the podcast via Patreon or PayPal, that is always much appreciated. So until next time, may you have interesting, entwined, and inspiring weather. Because as we all know, there's much more to weather than the weather itself. We're tired of hearing our uncle grovel, so please support him on patreon.com slash weather. This is your two white sofa production.